July 4th, 1776, of course, is a date that we all cherish as citizens of the United States of America. July 4th, 1776 is, of course, the date that we remember, that we celebrate Independence Day. Very important date. However, there's another date that is lesser known, but I would argue is of much greater importance. That is October the 31st, 1517. For on that date, a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther hammered his now famous 95 theses to the castle wall at Wittenberg, Germany and publicly protested some of the abuses that he saw taking place in his beloved church. And so we celebrate every year at Christ Fellowship Reformation Sunday, which is the Sunday that lies closest to October 31st. And I think Ken said it right. I truly am giddy. I am excited each Reformation Sunday to deliver a, a special special message, whether it's a, a doctrinal theme that has to do with the Reformation or a biographical theme uh, that will uncover one of the Reformers or a man who has been influenced by the theology of the Reformers. And that is the direction we will Uh, take this morning. So in light of Reformation Sunday, we'll move out of the book of Romans, and I want to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. While you make your way to 2 Timothy chapter 4, this will not be the typical expository message verse by verse, but I'm going to use this passage really as a a launching pad to help us unpack some vital truths that pertain to The Protestant Reformation. The Council of Constance condemned him as a heretic on May the 4th, 1415. His writings were banned and he was condemned on 260 different counts and posthumously excommunicated. That is, he was banished, he was booted out of the church after his death. Pope Martin V decreed that his body should be exhumed for the young people. You may prefer dug up out of the ground and burned. The Pope also decreed that his writings were to go up in flames. The exhumation and cremation of his corpse was carried out in 1428. His ashes were cast into the River Swift, which flows through Lutterworth, England. I have never been to Lutterworth. I hope to go one day and had a recent opportunity to look at some photographs of this little town. It's a quaint little town, and I love to use my imagination to get into the skin of the great heroes that lived in this little village. Who was this man who drew the ire of the most influential leaders in the church and also included none other than the Pope himself? This man that we will consider this morning produced more than 200 written works in his lifetime, and his beliefs during 
his adult years reverberated not only throughout all of England, but soon reverberated all around the world. His name is John Wycliffe. And the title of the message this morning is John Wycliffe, the Morning Star of the Reformation. I want to give you a a brief overview, a brief biography of this very little known man. This is a man who preceded the birth of Martin Luther by about a hundred years. Yet, I have found that very few evangelicals are tuned in and engaged to the life, the legacy, and the ministry of John Wycliffe. Begin with the early years. Wycliffe was born in approximately, we don't know the exact date, but all of the records I looked at and the books that I explored were approximately 1330 is when he was born. He died in 1384 as a rather young man. I remember... Gary, I have shared this story, Gary Smith, several times as I had a chance to be at the men's retreat uh, last week. And I want to thank uh, my good friend Ken, uh, Ken, Chris, Ken's my good friend too, but Chris Veldman for preaching in my stead. And I really appreciate that so much. But it was a few weeks ago in, I, you'd have to help me remember, Gary, either in Ironman or in Veritas, I made uh, clear one of my theories. I have this theory that in church history, especially in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, that God took some of the most godly men in their 50s. And I went and I just, I read several of the different men that God took in their 50s. And I, I was ready to move on to the next point, And Gary Smith raised his hand. I wonder what the world Gary could ask at this point. He said, how old are you, Pastor? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I had to check my pulse there for a minute. John Wycliffe is a man who died in 1384, as I already mentioned, died almost 100 years prior, almost to the day, to the birth of Martin Luther. This is a young lad who received an education in Lutterworth by the village priest. And he received a great education. He learned Latin. He learned grammar. He learned dialectics. And he learned the discipline of geometry. At 16 years of age, do we have any 16-year-olds here in the peanut factory? We have a few. All right. At 16 years of age, William, Wycliffe... Enrolled at Oxford University. Can you imagine, William, if you say to mom and dad, uh, by the way, next week I'm heading to Oxford. Wouldn't that be something, Chad and Chessa, to have William say, I'm off to the university. That's how old Wycliffe was at this point in his life. His education would continue at Oxford, and he would sit under noteworthy philosophers and theologians. One that you may have heard of is a gentleman by the name of William of Ockham. Now, his family must have seen great potential in this young man because they would send him from Lutterworth to Oxford, which would amount about 10 days by foot. This would be a journey to Oxford, a journey that would be filled with with all kinds of horrible events along the way. It wouldn't be like... uh, one of us walking, let's say, to Seattle. That, I mean, you could hitchhike to Seattle if you wanted to. But to walk from Lutterworth to Oxford, think this time in pre-modern England. It was not unusual to be robbed, to be beat up, 
to be set to the side of the road as one that was worthless in these days. The threat of thieves along the way is something that every traveler was well aware of. But his mom and dad were willing to take the risk to send him on the 10-day journey to Oxford, where he would become a student, where he would eventually grow from a student to a professor, and he would, he would learn and study and teach philosophy and proceed to learn and teach theology. And it was during his time at Oxford University where John Whitfield began to grow deeply concerned about the theological errors that he saw in his church. And this is something that caught me a little by surprise. I mean, I, I've studied Whitfield over Whitcliffe over the years, rather, and it just struck me just a few days ago that he was not someone from the outside looking in, pointing his finger at his enemies. Rather, he was a Catholic. He loved the church. But as he grew educationally, as he grew theologically, he began to see some things in his church that caused him concern. Now, bear in mind, this is a hundred years, as I mentioned, prior to the birth of Luther. The Reformation has not happened. Guess how many churches exist? One. There is the church, and he is in it. Wycliffe gained a reputation then as a leading theologian and philosopher. In 1374, he was appointed as rector of Lutterworth, a position that he held until his death. And so simply put, his days consisted of, he went off to Oxford, he spent his days as a student turned theologian, philosopher, professor, and he is sent back to his hometown to serve the people in that arena. Move now to a dark period in English Christianity. Most agree that the 14th century was probably the, the darkest, if not one of the darkest periods in all of English Christianity. It was J.C. Ryle who said, It is no exaggeration to say that these three centuries before the Reformation, Christianity in England seemed to have been buried under a mass of ignorance, superstition, priestcraft, and immorality. And these are the kinds of things that caused Wycliffe great concern. Move now to Wycliffe's writing ministry, and oh, was it a ministry. As I said earlier, he wrote many, many books over the course of his life, but there are three pivotal works I can make you aware of. In 1374, he published a book entitled On Divine Dominion, which confronted papal authority. Imagine how popular that was, because he was a voice, a lone voice, crying out in the wilderness. In 1376, he published a book entitled On Civil Dominion, that confronted his church's assertion on authority over the English crown and over English nobility. And then in 1378, just two years later, he penned a book entitled On the Truth of Sacred Scripture, which celebrated the authority of Scripture. Now, these works were penned over a hundred years before the Protestant Reformation, and I believe really helped to, to set the table. These writings helped to set the stage for future reformers. In 
I think almost every other message that I have preached on Reformation Sunday, we have focused on men like Luther Luther or doctrinal themes from the 16th century. Now we're going to reverse a bit and see what what the heroes to Martin Luther believed and how he influenced not only Luther, but the Czech reformer Jan Hus. Amazing men of God. But beyond, beyond Wycliffe's writing ministry, I want you to consider for a moment his Bible translation ministry. And while he wrote book after book after book, nothing, nothing was more important than the translation ministry of John Wycliffe. He believed that the Bible should be read and studied by everyone, not just the clergy. Now, for a congregation in 2019, that means almost nothing to many of you. Let me read it again. He believed that the Bible should be read and studied by everyone, not just the clergy. For those of you unaware, I would be considered clergy. The elders and the deacons would be considered clergy. If you're not an elder or a deacon, you would be considered laity. And may I remind you that the clergy and the laity are equal before Almighty God. Just like a man and a woman is equal before Almighty God, the clergy and the laity are equal before Almighty God, but have distinct roles and functions under the authority of God and the authority of Scripture. Important things to remember. But during the 13th and the 14th century and beyond, you need to remember that the Bible was written in Latin. And many people were simply uneducated during these days. And so you would attend a religious service. You would attend Mass, and you would hear the Mass performed in Latin. And vast numbers of people had no idea what the priests were saying. Would you do me, just just for fun, to amuse me, if you have a Bible this morning, and that includes a tablet, or a phone, or an iPad, or a Kindle, would you hold it high? And let me see how many of you have Bibles. That, that would be most of those of you that aren't holding a Bible. Where is your Bible today? I have a friend who's with the Lord now. His name's Ron Schaefer. He pastored down in Salem, Oregon. And he had a, a little tradition. Some of you will like it and some of you will not like this at all. Because I'm thinking of starting this tradition. It is after church, he would wander throughout the sanctuary. And at every church, all around the world, at every church, at the end of the service, there's always a Bible or two that are left over, right? And usually what we do at Christ Fellowship is we put the Bible on the, at the Welcome Center. And so you can find your Bible if you left your Bible in the last few weeks, right? What my friend Ron would do is he would grab that Bible and he would take it and put it in his study. And he'd hold it for about a month. And then he'd do something really cruel. He would stand in the pulpit and he would say, I have a Bible that's been in my study, uh, oh, for about a month. Oh, John Smith. John, would you like to come up and grab your Bible? Oh, what have you been doing for a month, John? Yeah, I see cringes. Wow. I mean, Ron, are you serious? But what I want to convey is this, is we all have a Bible in our laps. We all have a Bible on our, our devices I would be curious to know, raise your Bible again if you have more than one Bible in your possession. Some of you have more than one Bible right now. It's on your device, it's in your lap, you have one in your car, and then you go home and you have several Bibles. We, we have a rich heritage, and you know who we have to thank for that? John Wycliffe. 
John Wycliffe is a great hero of the Christian faith. And so he believed the Bible should be read and studied by everyone, not just the clergy. That was a revolutionary idea in his day. He said to be ignorant of the scripture is the same thing as to be ignorant of Christ. At this point in church history, as I've already said, the, bio, the, 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 la, the mass was presented in Latin, and so very few people could understand what was happening in a church service. Some of you say, when I preach, I do it in English, and you still don't understand it. You've told me. I'm not bragging, I'm lamenting. Wycliffe had a burning passion to translate the Word of God into the English language. Such was the theme of his book, On the Truth of Scripture. To call such a venture a massive undertaking is a huge understatement. But translating the Scripture was not the only challenge that Wycliffe encountered. So imagine this, if you would, with me. You have the Latin Vulgate that very few people can read. The clergy can read it, but most of the lady cannot read it. And so Wycliffe has this passion to, to translate the Latin into the language of the commoner. You will remember that in the 16th century, Luther did the same. He took the Greek New Testament and he went to the castle at Wartburg, a castle that I have spent time at physically, and he was secluded in a room for 10 months. And for 10 months, he translated the Greek text into the language of the common man, German. And so for the first time, the German people had the Bible in their language and they could understand what the minister was saying. And so he not only has this massive task. Can you imagine if I said that after church, I'm going to gather uh, five or six men. And we're going to begin the task of translating the whole Bible from Latin to English. How many of you would be nervous? I mean, what a task. What an amazing task. That's not the only challenge he faced. According to the law of the church... This will blow you away. Translating the Bible, and I quote, translating the Bible into a vulgar, common language, namely English, was a heresy punishable by death. So Wycliffe not only has the task of of translating the entire Bible from Latin to English, he knows that every word he and his team translate, they may get a knock at the door and say, you're heading to the stake. You're going to burn for your heresy. But like Luther, who would come over a hundred years later, Wycliffe was held captive to the Word of God. He was convinced that sacred scripture needed to be translated into English so all the people could read and understand and meditate and memorize and glory in the word of God that many of us take for granted, do we not? We wake up in the morning and we read our Psalms. We wake up in the morning and we read the Gospels. We wake up in the morning and we read the Pentateuch. We wake up in the morning and we read Paul's letters to the churches. What an amazing legacy John Wycliffe has left us. I want to break for a moment. Not a coffee break. But I want to break to just provide a footnote 
and discuss the importance of church history. Now, some of you know my horrible pilgrimage of church history. I've shared it with a few of you that there was a day in my life when I absolutely despised church history. I took it via correspondence course as one of my last courses at Multnomah University, and I failed it. I took it again. I think I got a D. I barely passed it. I just, I, I, I couldn't understand it. I didn't see what the meaning was. And thankfully, God brought some men into my life, most notably R.C. Sproul, who essentially told me without ever directly to my face that I was an idiot for not liking church history. And he was right. And they were all right. And I needed to repent of that horrible error. But here's what I've learned over the years. Church history matters. Because when we forget the past, we fail to learn valuable lessons that impact our lives. One great thinker famously said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so Christians who minimize the importance of church history are vulnerable to the theological error that plagued churches in the past. I was sharing with one of my dear friends about a gentleman who I sat down to have coffee with, and we were talking about church history. And I was, I was in one of the, Ken said I'm giddy about this kind of thing. I was giddy, and I was getting ready to, to talk about how excited I was about church history. And my friend said to me, I didn't want to hear it. And guess what I was getting ready to share? I was getting ready to share about Wycliffe, who translated the Latin into the English. I was getting ready to share about William Tyndale, who was the first one to have it printed in English, because Wycliffe came before the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press. My friend said to me, before I could utter these words, I'm sick of it. I don't want to hear any of this. And so as one who didn't want to waste any more breath, I decided not to talk about it. You see, church history matters. Church history matters because it strengthens our faith. Scripture instructs, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, Hebrews 13, 7. That term, remember, is a present imperative verb that means to keep thinking about, to call to mind. And so to remember godly leaders in church history, I believe, is not optional. It is a command in sacred scripture. The author of Hebrews does not limit the scope of these leaders then to leaders like Moses and Abraham or Paul or Peter. He instructs us to remember leaders who spoke to you the word of God. And so some of the leaders that have spoke to me the word of God are men like Augustine and Luther and Calvin, and Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, and now R.C. Sproul, who is with the Lord. We do well to follow in their paths by boldly proclaiming the truth and living faithfully before our Savior, even when our detractors heap insults upon us for faithfully remembering these great heroes of the Christian faith. I would argue that young people in our culture need heroes. Sure, we have our sports heroes and we have our music heroes and we have our our actors and our actresses who are our heroes. But I believe there's a greater kind of a hero and that is a theological hero. Our heroes who are men and women of the book. Church history also matters because God ordains specific events that lead to the worldwide spread of his glory. You may have heard this said, that church history is His story. History is His story. 
And so whenever we discount history, as I did for several years of my life, we subtly stand in judgment over God and claim to know a better way. Whenever we disparage church history, as I did, and we subtly place ourselves in a position that was never ours to enjoy. Indeed, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and he does it in history, and he does it in church history. So, Wycliffe and his team of volunteers, they held true to their goal. Aren't you glad? They did not give up, even though they didn't complete their work until 1395, 11 years after Wycliffe's death. Keep in mind, as I already mentioned, the printing press was not to be invented until 1440. And so this small army of godly individuals were charged with copying and distributing the Bible to their friends and family members. Wycliffe, the Wycliffe Bible was used for over a century until William Tyndale, who we have learned about in previous uh, Reformation Sundays, made the first printed translation of the Bible into the English language. Move with me now quickly to uh, opposing the church that he loved. There are several things in particular that he struggled with. He opposed a group of of leaders, of men called the Mendicant Friars, who earned him a reputation with the Pope. This is where Wycliffe got in hot water with the Pope. He opposed the, the rampant superstition and idolatry in his church. He opposed the unbiblical doctrine of transubstantiation, that is the doctrine that his church believed that the bread at the communion table and the wine at the communion table transform miraculously into the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wycliffe said, quote, The word transubstantiation had no basis in Scripture and was therefore a creation of man with no place as church doctrine where he really got into hot water with his church as he opposed the authority of Rome and he opposed the authority of the Pope. He held that the Word of God is our highest authority. There is no other authority higher than God's authoritative, infallible, inerrant Word. Well, on February the 19th, 1377, Wycliffe stood before the Bishop of London at St. Paul's Cathedral. When Jereen and I were in London, we had the opportunity to walk up the steps of St. Paul's. And if you've ever been there or seen pictures, it is an absolutely breathtaking cathedral. And as I was thinking about our time there, do you remember what happened on that day, sweetie? Uh, We got lost that day. We got lost and took a cab, and then we got dropped off at the place where we were to stay. And I said to the cab driver, oh, this, this is it. Stop right here. Well, all the, all the places look the same. You can think about, you know, if downtown Abbey or anything. And we thought we were in the right place. We got out, and Jereen said, Honey, do you know where we are? And I said, Yeah, the little hotel's right over there. And she says, I think again. And so we walked and walked and walked. Do you remember how we got back? Pizza delivery boy. <laughs> he had mercy on us, but he didn't give us any pizza. So it was on February the 19th, 1377, that, that this figure in church history was at the cathedral that we stood on the steps of, St. Paul's in London. And this began a series of confrontations and condemnations of Wycliffe by his church. 
he was challenged one final time directly by the Pope. Pope Urban summoned him to Rome to defend his quote-unquote heresies. But Wycliffe was growing older, and he was ill this season of his life, and he also suffered what appears to be, according to the best resources that I could unearth, a stroke when he was delivering a message in 1384. I want to draw your attention to the verse that we have turned to this morning, to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, and make a few observations and trust that it will encourage you in your Christian walk. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. I want to leave you this morning with three lessons from the Morning Star of the Reformation. And Wycliffe received the label the Morning Star of the Reformation because he is, he is not, in any sense, the father of the Reformation. Martin Luther is the father of the Reformation. But the Morning Star provided the light for men like Jan Hus and Martin Luther then in the 16th century. Notice three lessons. The first lesson is that Wycliffe had an unshakable commitment to stand strong in the face of adversity. When Wycliffe was summoned to stand before his church, he went if health permitted, and he always stood strong. There was no wavering, there was no apologizing. He always had an unshakable commitment to stand strong in the face of adversity. It's interesting because I was sharing with my class this morning uh, one of my little foibles, and it's a foible I'm not proud of, but in some writing I have done, I have been critical of Paul Young, the author of The Shack, and rightly so. And in this little introduction that I penned for the men's retreat last week, I was sharing with the men in class that I got to thinking that Paul Young lives in close vicinity to this retreat center I was going to be at. Wouldn't it be embarrassing if I went to this retreat and handed out these notes, and I'm critical of his theology, and so you know what I did? The courageous person that I am, I edited it out. With John Wycliffe, there is no editing. This is a man who is courageous. This is a man who is willing to stand up for what he believes. This is a man who, if someone shows up to the retreat, he's not going to cower to fear like I did. He stands strong in the face of adversity. And my question is, as a follower of Jesus, how do you stand in the face of adversity? Do you stand strong or do you capitulate? Do you stand strong or waver as I did a few days ago? When challenged, do you go on the offensive or do you shrink back? When the prophets of post-modernity get on their soapbox and they spew their vitriol at you, do you challenge them? Or do you fade into obscurity and allow their ideas to dominate the discussion? My friends, this is happening like wildfire in our culture now. It's happening like wildfire in the church. The truth is marginalized and the false teachers get a pass. Wycliffe wasn't willing to allow that to happen. He stood strong in the face of adversity. There's a second lesson from the Morning Star of the Reformation. He had an undeniable commitment to God's word. Wycliffe was so committed to God's word that he was willing to put his life on the line, literally. He said, quote, I believe that in the end, truth will conquer, close quote. 
And so think about your commitment to the Word of God. What kind of value do you place on the Word? Is the Word of God something that is placed on your shelf when you get home from church and is never touched until you get back to Christ fellowship? Or is the Word of God something that is opened and read and meditated and memorized on a daily basis? I have a friend at Christ fellowship, won't embarrass him, but one of the first times I met him, I, I looked down. I had met his wife the week before, and he knows who I'm talking about. Uh, but I had met his wife and his family the week before, and I think he was at work. And then the next week he came, and I shook his hand, and I looked down, and I looked at his ESV Bible, and his Bible was thrashed. Just thrashed and just all bent up and notes and things sticking out of it. And I remember telling my wife, now there's a guy I, I need to get to know. If you have a thrashed Bible... That's the kind of gentleman you want to get to know. I heard a story about a a young man who applied at Grace Community Church where John MacArthur is the pastor. And he showed up and all he had was his Bible and he couldn't find his preaching Bible. And so he took one of his old thrashed Bibles and he made a comment and really apologized to Pastor MacArthur. MacArthur said a a well-used Bible is a sign of a man of God. So my question is to men and women of God, are you using your Bibles are you, are you standing on the, the great realities that, that, that Wycliffe helped to unearth as he translated the Bible from Latin to the English? Do you read it? Do you cherish it? Do you cling to it? Even when our culture militates against it. Have you seen how our culture militates against this book? They hate this book. They hate this book. Do you, like Wycliffe, have an undeniable commitment to God's word? There's a third and a final lesson that I would commend to you, and that is that Wycliffe had an unwavering commitment to preach God's Word. Look at 2 Timothy 4, and where I really want to focus just for a minute is this little phrase, Keruzon ton lagan, preach the Word. It means to herald, it means to proclaim, it means to announce the divine message of the Word of God. J.I. Packer refers to the gospel as a, quote, proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. That is the focus of the preached word. And so that word translated preach is also translated as proclaim. We see in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Matthew 10, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom is at hand. In Acts chapter 28, 31, Dr. Luke says this of the Apostle Paul, that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then Paul utters these words in Romans 10. We'll get there in four or five years. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. 
I stand in a village church in the Republic of Belarus, about an hour away from Minsk. It was in the middle of nowhere. And I walked into a little village church with makeshift pews and scrappy carpet and no decorations on the wall. The only thing in this church was a sign with some words inscribed on it in Russian above the pulpit. And I leaned over to my friend and I said, Sergey, what does that sign say? And he says in Russian, it says, Preach the word. Preach the word. There are three marks, rather four marks, of a strong proclamation ministry I want to commend to you. Number one, strong proclamation must be Christ-centered. Not religion-based, not man-centered, but Christ-centered. This is the kind of preaching that does not water down the hard edges of the gospel. This is the kind of preaching that does not proclaim a a health and a wealth gospel. Please be aware, my friends, of the health and wealth gospel that is taking America by storm. And far be it from someone like you or me to critique it or criticize it, you are going downtown, Bobby Brown, if you critique the health and wealth gospel. But it is a godless anti-gospel This proclamation ministry that is Christ-centered does not elevate man's free will and it does not minimize the sovereignty of God. This is a preaching that must be gospel preaching, preaching that proclaims that Jesus dies for sinners who was raised for our justification, preaching that proclaims that sinners may be forgiven if they turn from their sin and turn to Christ, preaching that proclaims there is one way of salvation, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer continues, the preacher's task is to display Christ, to explain man's need of him, his sufficiency to save and offer of himself in the promises as Savior to all who truly turn to him, and to show as fully and plainly as he can how these truths apply to the congregation before him. A strong preaching ministry is Christ-centered. Number two, A strong preaching ministry must be fearless. Need I remind you that we live in a culture that is filled with cowardice, where preachers backpedal and compromise the precious doctrinal realities of Scripture. I've even admitted myself to editing something out of an introduction section in this men's retreat because I was afraid of the backlash from one person. We can scarcely remember the days of the Puritans when... The doctrines of hell and election and the sovereignty of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the the lordship of Jesus Christ were powerfully proclaimed from their pulpits. This is how Paul says it. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. That's the model of Paul the Apostle. He would just preach and preach and preach, and he never backed down. He never compromised. Number three, strong proclamation must have a sense of urgency. That is, it must be blood earnest and have a sense of gravitas. This is a lesson that I've learned from Stephen Lawson. I don't think I have the high pitch like Stephen Lawson has. He gets very amped up. If you've heard of Steve, you know what I'm talking about. But it's Dr. Lawson who has helped me to understand there must be a gravitas to preaching. This is not a small group discussion. This is not a, this is not a dialogue. This is not time for questions and answers. There's time for that in other arenas in the church. But the preaching time must have a sense of urgency to it. 
Acts 20.31, Therefore, be alert, remembering, Paul says, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Finally, strong proclamation must carry the full weight of biblical authority. And we see that in the passage before us. We see that it must reprove, it must rebuke, it must exhort, it must include teaching, it must confront worldly ideology. As Martin Lloyd-Jones was fond of saying, preaching is logic on fire. I love that. And so Wycliffe's ministry was Christ-centered, fearless, had a sense of urgency about it, and carried the full weight of biblical authority. Wycliffe, before he died, declared, Truly aware I am that the doctrine of the gospel may be for a season trampled underfoot. Equally sure I am that I shall never be extinguished, for it is the, the recording of truth itself. Isn't that something for the man whose body was exhumed and cremated and dumped in the river swift? My question this morning to you is, do you have an unwavering commitment to proclaim the truth of God? This morning, I have a pulpit where I proclaim the truth of God's word, but you all have pulpits as well. You have a pulpit at work. You have a pulpit at school. You have a pulpit on the ball field. You have a place where you're able to share the eternal truths of God's word with people that need to hear it. John Wycliffe, the great hero of the Christian faith, had an unshakable commitment to stand strong in the face of adversity. He had an undeniable commitment to God's word and an unwavering commitment to preach the word of God. This is the legacy of John Wycliffe. One writer observed, they burnt his bones to cast his ashes into the swift. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe and the emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed the world over. As I've already indicated, the Bible that I'm preaching from, the Bible in your lap, the Bible on your devices, are a direct result of the great work and the godly work and the efforts of John Wycliffe. As we celebrate Reformation Sunday, may the memory of John Wycliffe move you to action. I'd be very curious to see what God does in the hearts of young people. There might be a young man, there might be a young lady who says, well, I'm inspired by this guy. What a godly, courageous individual. I want to be like that. I want to be a a young man or a young woman who has the courage of John John Wycliffe. As we close our short excursion in the life and the legacy of Wycliffe, let me encourage you with a few practical admonitions, if you will. Number one, never, never, never underestimate the Word of God. The Word of God is the most powerful thing on planet Earth. Nothing matches the Word of God. Number two, never neglect the Word of God. May I encourage you to to cherish it, to read it, to study it, to memorize on it, to, to, to rudimate on it, to, to mull over, to share with others, but never neglect the Word of God. Have a place for your Word where you know this is where it's going to stay, and, and this is where I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to read it every morning. Number three, never be ashamed of God's Word. 
We learned several weeks ago in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Number four, never take the word of God for granted. The Bible you hold in your hands is a direct result of the, the faithful labors of God's people. Sometimes I look at the Bible and Bibles in my study, and it's every translation you can dream of. It's the Greek, and it's the Hebrew, and then you move on to commentaries that are about the Bible, and sometimes it's a little embarrassing to think that, look at all these Bibles and tools I have. There are people in other parts of the world that don't have access to these kinds of things. Number five, maintain your allegiance to the truth of God's word. One writer says, though they dug up his body, burned his bones, and drowned his ashes, yet the word of God and the truth of his doctrine and the fruit of his success thereof, they could not burn, which yet today, on this day, doth remain. And the reason we know that's true is because we have the word of God. Because Wycliffe and his team were the first to translate it from the Latin into the vulgar language, that is, the English language. And so the morning star of the Reformation helped to to set the table for men like John Hus and Martin Luther. These bold and courageous men put the Bible front and center because of a sense of duty, but also out of a sense of delight. And I believe that our challenge is to learn these great lessons well and to allow the the infallible truths of God's Word to, to shape us, to mold us, and to transform us into the kinds of people that God wants us to be. One of the things that the Protestant Reformers used to, to utter oftentimes during the 16th century was this little Latin phrase, Semper Reformanda, simply translated, always reforming. That is the passion of my heart, and I pray it's the passion of yours, that we as the people of God would be always reforming, reaching out to people that need to hear and learn about the saving message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for uh, this study in the life of John Wycliffe. We not only thank you for his life, but for the faithful people who stood by his side to translate uh, the Bible into the English language. Thank you for his courage and the courage of his friends who, who uh, took this task on, even though they knew that there was danger lurk, lurking every moment of the way. Lord, help us to, to learn from Wyc- Wycliffe's example. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be courageous, to be men and women and young men and young women of the book. May the Word of God be at the center of our lives. May we learn from it. May we love it. May we lead people as a result of it. Lord, I pray that there would be a great transformation that takes place even on this morning because of our time in your word. And I close by asking that you would raise up young people, that you would raise up a new generation of John uh, Wycliffe's, that young men and young women would grow to be strong students of the word of God, that they would learn it and love it and memorize it and meditate on it, and that they would be the next leaders in the, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen them according to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.